there is no perfectly fitting bra. Don't be influenced. We're not here to influence this. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soulsmith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, we're doing a very fun Ask Me Anything episode because who doesn't love a good AMA? It seemed like you guys had a lot of great questions that came in, and so we just decided to do a good roundup episode. I've asked Corinne Faye to come on to help out with this one. For folks who don't know, Corinne works on Burnt Toast with me, and she is also the founder of At Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. And she very graciously agreed to come ask me your questions and even answer one of her own. So here's me and Corinne, but first, a quick break. So this is the part of the show where I usually tell you why you should support the show by subscribing. But I decided this week I'll let you tell you why you should support the show. So this message comes from Lindsay. She writes, I have a three-year-old daughter and I discovered your writing last year when I googled something like, how to not give my child an eating disorder. I am so grateful for the content you put out, the evidence-based approach you take, and the support I feel as I learn how to love and trust my body that endured the ravages of diet culture for the last 30 years. I am especially grateful for the fact that thanks to you and others doing this work, I have the tools to help my daughter grow up loving to eat, listening to her body, and recognizing the value in bodies of all shapes and sizes. I'm happy to be supporting your work, and I look forward to continuing on this journey. Thank you, Lindsay. I am so glad you are on this journey with us. Everyone else, you can tell me what you think of the show by leaving a rating and review in your podcast player. And if you want even more Burnt Toast, subscribe to the Burnt Toast newsletter by clicking the link in your episode description or going to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You'll get full access to the Burnt Toast newsletter, which includes reported essays and my monthly Ask Virginia column. And you'll become a part of the Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday thread discussions. Go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to learn more. Hi, Corinne. Thanks for doing this. Hi. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) I have drafted you to come on and help with this Ask Me Anything episode. Yeah, this should be fun. These things are always so weird and like sort of... I don't know. I I have feelings about them. So I'm glad you're here to do it with me. I love an AMA. They are the kind of thing that I kind of hate doing myself, but also love other people. So I recognize that people enjoy it. So, all right, I'm doing it. All right. Do you want to go for it? Yeah. Here's our first question. So I'd love to know if there's any body-related topic you ever have a hard time discussing with your kids. And if when that happens... What do you do to get better at having the conversation slash beginning the conversation? So for context, my kids are four and eight. So I'm sure there are many body conversations we have yet to have that may be hard for me in the future. But I have covered genitalia in a lot of detail. I've explained what the clitoris is for. You know, I've like gone pretty deep on some stuff. And certainly there's a lot of like fat positive talk in our house. Those conversations I sort of weirdly enjoy, I guess because often in parenting, you're not really having meaningful conversations with your kids. You're just trying to like move them through the day. And it's like when they ask a question like that, it's like, oh, this is an opportunity to actually like tell you something I know something about. (laughs) I don't know. It's weirdly rewarding. So those questions don't throw me too much. I think the sort of stress point for me on this is more related to food. 
when I'm navigating my children's strong feelings about not wanting to eat stuff or, you know, what I'm serving, what they wish I was serving, that kind of thing, I'm just more exhausted by it and, like, annoyed by it. Whereas, like, the sort of curiosity about bodies, I'm like, yeah, man, let's be curious about bodies. That's great. But when it's, like, more feelings about me wanting to keep all foods neutral, but maybe once a week we eat a vegetable, guys, I can sometimes feel more unsure in the moment. And my kids also have heard me say enough things that they can use my work against me when they want to, which is very smart of them, but also frustrating. So there will often be a lot of like, what's my body, my choice, when it's like, can you brush your teeth, you know? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And then it's like, well, crap. (laughs) Good work, guys. (laughs) But I guess I would also say there's definitely conversations that I was sort of overwhelmed the first time we had them. But the great thing about this is like you never have the conversation just once. Like I do remember trying to explain periods to both my kids the first time I explained them. I kind of traumatized them a little bit because like the blood and, you know, like my four-year-old sobbed at dinner one night about she was probably like three at the time. I explained what a period was and then she was like, well, then it's over and you're better, right? And I was like, oh, no, you do it every month for the rest of your life. And then she sobbed, I don't want to bleed forever, and went upstairs to her room. Wow. And I was like, do I explain about IUDs or have I already taken this too far? (laughs) Get out now. Get out now. That's incredible. I have plenty of examples of like, we had a conversation and I kind of fucked it up, but then you get another chance and you can normalize it and come back to it. And so that's what I would say is like, even if you feel like you really freeze in the moment or tell them more than they're asking and they cry, you could fix it later, I hope. Or, you know, it's good to have stuff to work on in therapy. Everyone needs stuff. (laughs) That seems like good advice. (laughs) All right. Our next question is, I am pregnant with my second due in mid-July. My first kid will have just turned four. Seems like your kids have a similar age gap. Got any tips for handling this major life transition for our four-year-old? I feel like he will inevitably hate us and the baby occasionally, but hoping to find ways to maintain some sanity and happiness at the same time. Hopefully. Yeah, I love this age spread. My kids are four years and two months apart, and it was awesome in the baby stage because the older kid can really get into being a big kid in the way that, like, when my kids were three, they didn't really want to be big kids. They still wanted me to do everything for them. And then sometime around four, they both have switched into, like, no, wait, I can do it. I'm feeling good about that. So, you know, you could lean into, like, can you go get me the diaper? Can you go get the bottle? And they would like having the jobs and like being in charge. And the other thing about four, I mean, obviously not all four-year-olds. I don't know what your situation is. But mine was in a full day of preschool at that age. So she kind of had her own world that she got to go to. And she would get a lot of attention for being a big sister. But she also could just like be with her friends and get attention and wasn't competing. So I think that is easier than when you have like two under two where the two little ones at home I think would be a lot more exhausting. A couple of things we did, I just bought like some new cheap coloring books and stickers and that kind of thing. And I stuck them in a box and it was called her big sister box. And then when I was like breastfeeding or bottle feeding or whatever, or just like, you know, going to be like stuck in one place with the baby for a bit, I could say like, do you want to get out your big sister box? And she would have like an activity she could do so that she was less enraged that I wasn't actively paying attention to her. And that was helpful. We didn't end up having to use it a ton, but it definitely helped in the first couple weeks. 
Otherwise, I would say, you know, it will be a huge shift. My relationship with my older child did change a lot just because now there are two of them. Like, of course, that's a huge shift. So just looking for ways to carve out time with your older kid can be really helpful just to kind of, you know, reinforce your bond with him, especially in the early stages. Like there would be a lot of like the baby's just going to like sleep on the floor here while I'm doing something with the bigger kid. And it is funny because with your first kid, you would sort of be like, I have to be paying attention to you all the time. And you do ignore the littler one a little more the second time. But I don't think that's a bad thing. So I guess my advice is find ways to ignore your baby, um, <laughs> which I don't think I meant to say. And it definitely gets better. And the other thing I will say is like four years apart, there are these years where it, they can really play together and be really close. So ours were really close at six and two and three and seven. Four and eight, there's a little bit more of a developmental change, but it's actually starting to come back again. So I give two thumbs up to this age spread. Okay, the next question is, what's your childcare situation and do you feel like you get enough time for yourself in your marriage? I have a one-year-old and I'm definitely struggling on the enough time front, even though I outsource most tasks. You have a one-year-old, so it's just terrible right now and it will get better. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're in a very hard time. I think... One is in some ways harder than the newborn stage when, you know, they're like a little cute house plant and you can put them places. But one, you really can't multitask because they're like always one head injury away from a hospital trip. And so there's just a lot more like wrangling of a mobile or an almost mobile one-year-old. Anyway, so sorry, the question was, what is my child care arrangement? Yeah, so... Right now, we don't have childcare outside of the school day. Our kids are in school from about 8.30 a.m. to whoever's picking them up has to leave at 2.30 p.m., except two days a week they have after-school activities, so they stay later and get picked up between 4 and 5. And so Dan and I trade off on who does the school day pickups. I do Mondays and Fridays, and he does Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and so that way I get three days a week where I have a pretty full work day. Like I'm back from school drop off by nine-ish and I'm at my desk till between four and five. So it's pretty manageable, although I do have to sort of plan carefully to remember to leave my desk at 2.30 on the days I have to pick them up from school. <laughs> but it is not a 50-hour work week. It's not compatible with a corporate job, but that's for sure. We're lucky that we both have pretty flexible careers. In terms of feeling like, do you get enough time for yourself in your marriage, though? It's like one or the other, I would say, <laughs> because, you know, there's the hours they're in childcare, but there's also the like morning of getting kids out the door, then the afternoon and early part of the evening is very family focused. And then we've got one kid in bed by seven and one kid still around until about 8, 8.30. And I like to go to bed at 8.30, so... <laughs> That's kind of my day. So, yeah, it is tricky to sort of fit in either time together or time alone. We're still working on it, I would say. We do try to, like, watch a show together a few nights a week. We are now that there we're not in, like, COVID craziness. We are able to get babysitters for date nights or nights out with friends. Also, at these ages, and you are not here at the one-year-old, but with four and eight-year-old, it is much less of a big deal for one of us to, like, go away with friends for the weekend. So we've been doing that more. Or even just, like, say, like, I'm going to be out for a chunk of hours on the weekend. Like, 
I would feel rage at being left with small children when they were like under three because it's just so much work. And now it's much more like my kids can entertain themselves and play together and I can be out in the garden while they're doing stuff and it's not as draining. So it definitely gets better. But yeah, the one-year-old year is a time where having enough time for yourself is very hard. That's really tough. Yeah, I feel like I just convinced a lot of people not to have kids. <laughs> well... maybe i'm not wrong (laughs) yeah all right the next question is you have mentioned that your husband is thin and athletic so is mine how do you manage your feelings around gaining weight while he has stayed thin this is an area that i'm struggling with for myself yeah skinny husbands are the worst One thing that has been helpful is as I have been able to untangle weight and health, I understand that both of our health pictures are quite nuanced in different ways. So just because he's thin and can run a lot does not necessarily mean he's healthier than me in every marker, if that makes sense. I can see like health is a much more nuanced issue now. And so that was helpful because then I don't feel like I need to compare our cardiovascular abilities, which obviously his are superior because he's like a marathon runner and I'm not. But it is hard so the other thing about me and Dan is we went to high school together. We actually went to middle school together too. We could that's I know. It's it's very adorable. Big reveal. Also, also a whole thing. Um, and so we know a lot of people who knew us a long time ago. And when we run into people who knew us a long time ago, I do have to sort of do some self-talk about, like, I look very different than we looked 20 years ago. And he looks like the same, but a little more gray hair. And it just is what it is, you know? I mean, his whole family is built that way. They, they have one type of person they make with their genes, and my family has a different type of person that we make with our genes, and our person changes more through the years, and this is normal. And it's not a value judgment on either of our body types. But yeah, I've had a few moments over the years of feeling weird about that and needing to kind of process it. But I think, you know, what also really comes down to is like, He's never made me feel weird about my body. Like, he's been a fan of my body throughout its journey. (laughs) And so I think, like, as long as you've got that in place, then, you know, it shouldn't matter. Like, my sense of my body does not hinge on my husband's feelings about it. But if there was a way in which your thin partner is making you feel bad about your larger body, that's a whole other thing you need to unpack and work through. And that's not a part of our story. It's very tricky because it's not just about what your weight is. It's also kind of about how you both think about weight. I think that's helpful. This is just making me think of the, there was like a TikTok going around for a while where some thin lady was like, I have to tell you, like, try on your boyfriend's jeans. And then all these like bigger women were like, LOL, they go up to my knees. The other day I grabbed the wrong coat to like take the dog out to pee. And I was like, it doesn't zip. Why doesn't it? Oh, right. It's not mine. (laughs) Because we have like similar looking North Face coats. Yeah, and that is irritating. But it also should not be irritating. Like, there's so many. I mean, the thing is, is like, it is such a stupid stereotype and it is rooted in no reality that women can't be bigger than their male partners or that you can't be bigger than your partner of any gender. Like, this is such an odd 
thing that we are so locked into. And so, yeah, I guess another thing I would say is like anytime you start to feel weird about it, like remember that the person to blame is not your thin husband and it's not your fat body. It's the culture that's making you think there's something wrong with what is like a totally normal dynamic. There are millions of thin men married to fat women and think that their fat wives are amazing. And they are not heroes, by the way. That's the other thing that's really annoying. There was like a viral one where it was like, look how brave he is to be like proposing to his fat girlfriend or something. And I was just like, I mean, we need to stop that. Okay. The next question is, what do you guys think about the you got to find the perfectly fitting bra craze? Okay. I'm going to want to know your thoughts about this because you are more of a fashion expert than me. My first feeling is it is a ton of marketing hype. And also, I do hate a badly fitting bra. So I don't know. This one's tricky. What do you think? God, I don't know. I have such a complicated relationship (laughs) with bras. (laughs) They're a very hard garment. It feels like such an industry-created problem, though, right? Like, maybe we should do bra science at some point. I feel like I go through waves of, like fuck bras I don't want to wear a bra or I just want to wear a sports bra and then like no I really need this like architectural garment that (laughs) fits me perfectly right right but it does sometimes seem like they just don't make enough sizes sometimes I don't know they don't like there's too many variables it is a complicated I shouldn't say like oh it would be so easy to make bras that fit everybody like The human body has infinite variations, and this is a particularly variable section of anatomy. Yeah, I will say I have never, or at least not since I had kids, and I don't know if it was like sort of a pregnancy postpartum thing that never quite went away. I cannot say fuck bras. I wear a bra every day. Mm -hmm. Even in COVID when everyone was like, isn't it great? We don't have to wear bras to leave the house. I was like, I'm wearing one. What's wrong with me? Am I a bad feminist? Because... (laughs) I just am more comfortable in one. Like I, I mean, I, this feels like an argument for you do have to find the perfectly fitting bra. <laughs> I, but I don't. I don't know. I'm trying to think what I want to say about this. Like, I weirdly, I just want to ask you, what is it? What is the perfect? Okay, <laughs> is, that, well, I, is that TMI for no, the podcast? No, no. I will say there's a website barenecessities.com. I think they carry like the best sort of variety of brands and I have found their customer service quite helpful and there are two brands I like on there one is Birdsong for like more of a structured like you know you take it off and it's still shaped like boobs kind of bra and the other one is Curvy Couture like (laughs) terrible name and that's more I've never heard of either of those they're two very good brands this is not sponsored we don't do sponsored content but I've been wearing both those brands for years because I wear a bra every day they do wear out after a year or two and I replace them and I find them both like pretty comfortable I mean I'm not saying like I put them on and I'm like oh it's like I'm in a warm bath like there's still an underwire bra But I don't know. I just like I have issues with chafing and movement and like, you know, I don't feel comfortable. And it's not about this. Like, I, you know, I am a larger breasted person, but it's not about like, oh, I wish they were smaller. It's just like I feel uncomfortable with the way they move around (laughs) when I'm in the world without support. Like, I don't I don't enjoy that experience. Like, you know. 
So like from a physical pain perspective, so I'm more comfortable in one. Yeah. But I do also feel like this is a sort of like it feels like a problem the industry created by not making good bras. Then they could be like 60 percent of women are wearing the wrong size bra. You need to buy all new bras. And it's like, but if you had just made them better from the beginning, we wouldn't. Oprah wouldn't have had to reveal that to us, I guess. Yes. And also, like, could there be a little standardization? It just feels like it's so confusing. Well, so one thing I like about Bare Necessities is they convert the sizes between brands. So, like, Mm. I'm, like, a 38 triple D in most brands, but then in some brands, that's a 38H, and in some brands, that's a 36F. And, you know, and they seem to have grasped how the different brands change. So you're not, like... You know, they'll be like, what brand do you wear that size in? And then they'll be like, this brand, this bra, you should wear this size. And that's like a very helpful feature that saved me a lot of returns. So that's when, again, this is not an ad for them, but I have found that useful. Um, I will say third love bras are shit. And that is an Instagram trend. Yeah, with all their claims of so many sizes. Nope. Nope. Didn't work for me. At some point during the pandemic, I did the like, there's like a bra Reddit that goes really (laughs) deep into like measuring yourself. Oh, wow. And I did that. Yeah. And, and like they have like a calculator and then you can like post photo. There's just like all this stuff. So I did that and I was like, oh, none of these fit. So and it was like a lot of math. But uh, <laughs> I, feel like I don't want to do. do. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. do math when I'm shopping. <laughs> no, I feel like if I were going to try again, I would try to go somewhere in person, which is another recommendation I've heard. Like, go get measured by a person who knows what they're doing. I have heard that, too, and I have done that. Okay. And, I mean, I haven't done that in years. I haven't done that since pre-COVID, for sure, if not longer. Like, I live an hour from Mm. any good stores. Like, talking about that time for myself, I'd have to be like, instead of taking an afternoon to have lunch with a friend, I'm devoting four hours to a bra shopping <laughs> mission. Like, I don't I'm have that much time a to myself. to find a bra, yeah. Like, that is not gonna what, what I'm going to do with my precious child-free hours. But Yeah, that's a good point. It's definitely just not a priority for me. Yeah, yeah. On the sports bras, have you found a sports bra that you feel like is actually supportive? I feel like, uh, well, I don't know. I feel like I'm more in the like soft bra zone. Like there's a few I like. I like the free label Danny bra. I don't know if you've seen that. It's like bamboo. Yes. Yes. I think I cross front. I may have that. I have one free label bra that I do like. The Danny is like the biggest bust one and okay. that is the one that works the best for me. Um I've I also wore those like True and Co bra do you know what i'm talking about i feel like a long time they're like very thin and very stretchy okay and i'm definitely like outside of their size zone but it kind of fits Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i do feel like there is a place for the like soft t-shirty kind of bra where it's basically just like giving you a piece of elastic and that's yes that is that yeah i do i have what's the arc that's the one that makes oh. the crazy high-waisted underwear, right? Yes. Yeah, I have the one of their bras, and I like it for that, too. Wow. Um, I, I hate their bras. So, <laughs> so guys, don't, don't feel like we're giving you <laughs> hardcore recommendations here. There is no perfectly fitting bra. Don't be influenced. We're not here to influence this. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, but no, but I do enjoy the, like... Because I do feel like underwire is wearing permanent grooves in my body at this point. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like underwire bras, like, 
push my boobs out too far. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just like, now you're creating like an impediment for me, like going around corners or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I Anyways. definitely, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I just, they just need to be strapped down. Yes. And we're just good to like, go. Just be efficient and sort of, you know, not too much in my way. That's what I'm looking for here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a perfectly fitting bra. So in conclusion, yes, we think it's marketing hype. Also, we wish the the bras fit better. And yeah, do what you will with that, I guess. (laughs) All right. The next question is, would you rather one, talk about food or two, talk about bodies? So this is interesting because I was thinking like when we were talking about conversations that are hard to have with your kids, like for sure I'm more comfortable having the body conversations. But also my whole entry point into this world and my sort of authority as someone in this world definitely began with food because I wrote about my experiences with my older daughter on the feeding tube and then breaking out of diet culture. And I've done so much reporting on diets. So it's kind of funny that like in my own life, I don't want to talk about food and I can't decide if that's actually like it's hard or just like I'm sick of it because this is also my work. You know, it might just be some of that where I'm like, oh, don't make me talk about food. But I do find food really annoying to talk about. Because even like getting away from my kids, I feel like when you talk to friends or family members about food or just in the world about food, food brings up so much like people get really performative and people want to tell you about their diets and like they want to be really definitive about it. And it's such an annoying thing to navigate. You know, they want to apologize for how they're eating. Like then you have to deal with that. So I guess I still would rather talk about bodies, but I don't know. There's pros and cons. I don't know. What, where would you land on that one? I think I agree with you. I feel like food is really annoying to talk about. Yeah. And I also, like, similarly, I used to work with cookbooks and I worked in restaurants, so I've done a lot of work with food. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe people are less aware of cultural stuff around food. People are more willing to just be like, I'm paleo and sugar's bad for you. Mm-hmm. And like people are, are a little more connected to bodies and like yeah, yes. criticizing how people look or something like that. I mean, they can both be landmines for sure. Like for yeah. sure, for sure. But yeah, I think people tend to say like more definitive things about food. And then you're in this position of like, do I question that? Do I agree with that? Do I like, what do I? Yeah, it can be trickier to navigate. Yeah, and maybe, like, everyone has a little more sensitivity about, like, bodies. Right, a smidge more sensitivity, depending on the room. I mean, from a journalistic perspective, I would say I enjoy both equally, like, researching a diet, reading the research on it, debunking it. Like, that's very satisfying. And I like writing about these questions about our bodies. But I guess I've also just, like, done more of the food stuff, and so now it's sometimes the body questions are more interesting or feel fresher to me just because of, like, my trajectory. That makes sense. Okay, this question is, how did you decide that sharing your personal life, home, children, husband, vacation, etc., would be part of your public professional persona? I follow you on social media because I'm interested in your writing, but because of that, I see what feels like a lot of your personal life. Was this a conscious choice? Can you be a writer in the era of social media without the sharing? I don't think you can, and I hate it, <laughs> is my short answer. It feels necessary to share in order to be a person people want to follow on Instagram and then hopefully read their work. There's also the fact that I did make the conscious decision to write about a personal experience, which was having a child on a feeding tube. 
And in doing that, I sort of tipped myself into a category of writer who shares some personal things. I could have made the decision to stay a much more straightforward journalistic reporter who, like prior to having that experience, I don't think a lot of my life was on the internet in the same way, but also, you know, I had my first kid in 2013 and like we weren't, like Instagram was just a baby and like all of it was sort of new. You know, I don't think we were having to do as much sharing in the same way. But, you know, you certainly, like, if I had stayed in the more traditional, like, New York Times health reporter type of beat, like, you don't know a lot about those people's lives. But you also, that type of writer doesn't get to take stands on issues and has to sort of stay in a very traditional model of journalism that I was ready to break out of and do a little more activism journalism like I do now. So some of it was conscious. I do also want to say that yes, there are categories of my life that I share on Instagram, but there is so much of my life you are not seeing. And I think it's really important that people understand that even when it feels like you're seeing quite a lot, you're seeing so little. Like I have picked, like I share houseplants and gardening because they are actually quite impersonal topics to share about that are fun to talk about with people. You know, I might have other interests. I mean, I guess I kind of don't. Those are my main interests, but... (laughs) I do. I do have other interests that would feel more sensitive to share. You know what I'm saying? I no longer show my children's faces on social media. That was a decision I made a few years ago as they've gotten sort of older and more distinctive looking. Like every now and then one slips into a story, but, you know, I pretty much don't. And I don't share a lot of specifics about their personalities or struggles they're having. You know, I've never talked about toilet training either one of them, and I never will. Like, there's a lot that is off limits. If I have a fight with my husband, you're not going to hear about it. I think everybody in this space is constantly drawing and redrawing those lines for ourselves. And it's really hard because there is the pressure to share more and more. And I can sort of draw a direct line towards when I'm being more open and personal on Instagram. I get more engagement, and then that brings more people over to the newsletter to engage with my work. And that is like a shitty thing. You have to decide how much you want to talk about. But yeah, I mean, getting a dog was helpful because I was like, dog content feels innocuous. I can talk about the dog and then share less about the kids, I guess. Penelope has no boundaries with social media. What are your thoughts on all of that? I am glad to not have to do more of it. (laughs) It seems really hard. And yeah, yeah, I definitely can appreciate that there are lots of things people aren't sharing on social media. But people do often feel like they know you really well. And I get that because I do it too with people I follow. And it is sort of funny to then like exchange DMs with someone or get an email from someone that like, of course, it feels like you know me because... I'm like, in like you see my face talking to you or whatever, or I'm showing you the garden. And it is funny to be like, oh, right, but that's, you know, it's an odd way of knowing people, I guess. Have you ever gotten recognized on the street? No, that would be so weird. Thank I am God. No, I am not big enough for that. <laughs> I have friends who have, though, and it is a weird experience. So interestingly, some of the weirdness has come less from social media and more from traditional media. When I (laughs) first wrote about my daughter's condition in some like bigger media outlets, we did get some really weird emails and mail. And that was when I was like, so no faces on the internet. Like, and nothing Mm. like, I want to be clear, like nothing that was like putting their, like endangering my family. Although that 
can happen and absolutely happens and is revolting. Um, But just like things where I was like, people are assuming a familiarity with my family that I am not comfortable with. And so we're going to like draw some pretty bright lines around this. One small decision I made is I never show the exterior of my house on Instagram. Even though I show you the garden, I don't show you the house. And I don't plan to change that. Yeah. Because I'm just like, that doesn't need to be a thing people who live in other states yeah. can find. Totally. Yeah. So it is an ongoing question. It is something everyone I know who is any kind of public persona on Instagram, like we sort of regularly like revisit and struggle with. Mm-hmm. Okay. How does newsletter writing compare to book writing compared to magazine writing? And which do you prefer? I love this question. I have to say writing the newsletter is probably my favorite job I've ever had. It is for sure better than magazine writing. Watch me now just like block myself out of any future magazine work. No, I'm sure I will write for magazines. And when I say magazines, I mean, there's only like three magazines left in the world. So I'm really talking about magazines and websites, like any sort of prestige media outlets, I guess we could say. The big difference is when you write for other people like that. So the pro of it is you have an editor and a fact checker and a copy editor and an art person and like a whole team in most places, like going over the piece, making it really perfect. Like, you know, there's just like a lot of added support that I have had to, you know, with the newsletter, figure out how to like which parts I needed to replicate and how to replicate. And Corinne, you are doing it. So thank you. (laughs) And, you know, obviously like having a whole team behind you, like when there were times when I wrote pieces that were really controversial, it was nice that the publishing house had a lawyer who would vet it, you know, and make sure we wouldn't get sued, like that kind of thing. But you also, when you're writing for another outlet, have to fit your work into their vision. And particularly if you want to write about fat phobia, that's really hard because, you know, a lot of them haven't heard of it and or are perpetuating it daily in their health coverage. It's such a relief to be out of having to, like, have those negotiations and make those compromises. I don't miss that at all. I will also say from a work-life balance perspective, it's so much better because when you are freelancing for many different outlets, the odds of somebody emailing you the night you go on vacation to say they need a complete revise of a 3,000-word story. Oh, my God. It's like, it probably happened to us, like, at least 50% of vacations, if not more. I mean, I have friends who are just always working on vacation. That's just like, they know, they bring the laptop, they know that an editor is going to need something. And so the fact that I can now carve out for myself and be like, we're going to do a rerun episode that week, (laughs) that control has been amazing. And newsletter subscribers don't seem to get mad if we skip a week, like they get it. (laughs) So that's been really lovely. Book writing, I do also really love, although I'm at the point with this book where I'm ready to be done writing it because I have written over 80,000 words of it and that's, it's a lot of words and I'm tired, but I do really love it. But the thing about book writing is you're kind of like alone, right? You're in this little world writing the book and you don't get a lot of feedback. My editor's reading chapters as we go, but she'll send me her more detailed feedback when she reads the whole book. So you do sort of worry at times. So you're like, I am just like thousands of words into this thing. And if it's bad, like there's, you know, like no one's checking on it right now. And so let's hope. 
And with newsletters, you get the sort of instant. We're getting feedback from readers every week. So that part of it also I do love. So that's been a nice balance because, you know, I have days where I'm like in the book mode, like feeling really detached from the world. And then I get to come back to the newsletter and it's like, oh, no, this conversation's happening and I'm participating in it. It's a good answer. Yeah, there are three very different mediums for sure. And I'm sure I will write for magazines again. So magazine editors, you know, don't take it too personally (laughs) that I said I don't like it. All right. Now, Corinne, we have one question that came in for you. So I'm throwing it over to you now. What is at Selfie Faye's favorite thing to cook for company and how does she rule so hard? At Selfie Faye is Corinne's Instagram handle. Corinne, tell us, what do you cook and why do you rule so much? Oh, my God. Shout out to my friend Lise for <laughs> submitting this question. Um, I'm very excited about it. <laughs> the best most recent thing I've made for company, which also like such a funny question because who's having company right now? I feel like I've had company like not very often recently, which is sad. But the thing I've made that was great most recently was a very nice lasagna from Julia Tertian's cookbook, Small Victories. And it is special because you make your own pasta, which is both easier and more delicious than at least I was expecting. You also use a food processor, so it's like a little bit less messy. Nice. And you mix creme fraiche into the tomato sauce instead of using ricotta or like making bechamel. And it was very delicious and sort of like impressive. Um, yeah, you made your own pasta. That's very impressive. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I would, Definitely recommend that recipe and that cookbook and, like, Julia Tertian in general. Yes. General recommendation of Julia Tertian. She is amazing. We both live in the Hudson Valley, but, like, hours apart from each other. So I like to pretend we're friends um, because I think she's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe someday in real life. Speaking of internet making you feel like you know people, et cetera. Totally. Um, Yeah, that's completely my parasocial (laughs) um, weirdness. Yeah, the lasagna sounds awesome. Do you have a favorite thing to cook for company? I was actually just thinking about this because we have not had, like, friends over for dinner. We have not had a dinner party, I don't think, since COVID. And I really do want to have one soon. You know, it's getting warmer here. We have a nice screen porch. So, like, we could, like, eat on the screen porch. And I was, like, sort of paralyzed trying to remember what I used to make for people. I often do do a pasta because I make really good pasta, but I have a couple friends who are gluten-free by necessity, so then it's like figuring that piece out. But you can always just like make two separate batches of pasta. I've definitely done that. Yeah, I don't know. I need some like dinner party inspiration for sure. So I will check out Julia's cookbook. That's a great suggestion. Okay. If you could do any job in the world, including the one you invent, what would it be? I mean, I think I've invented it. To be honest, I do not and have never for the last 20 years had a job that is easy to explain to people at parties. You know, like my grandmother, I think, was always like, what does she do? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and certainly now when I'm like, well, I used to write a column for The Times and now I have this Substack. People are like, what? So, yeah, I did invent it. That said, if I couldn't be a writer for some reason... Like, writing didn't exist. I don't know. Some world where I'm not a writer. I think my other dream job would be garden designer. Not, like, landscaper, but I would come out and, like, putter around and prune things and plant things for people. 
And yeah, the design piece of it, I really love. Wow. What would yours be? This is a tough question. It's really hard. When I think of my dream job, I think of like, I want to be somewhere really beautiful and not have to work a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Making jam in the countryside or something. (laughs) Well, I feel like garden designer was sort of putting... Yes, yeah, yeah, that I was thinking, yeah. I wouldn't be a garden designer. I'd be like a make tiny batches of jam and sell it for a lot of money. (laughs) That sounds delightful. Honestly, I would buy your overpriced I do feel like whenever you support somebody like that, you do feel like, I hope I'm funding a really nice life for you with this Mm. ridiculously overpriced item that I'm buying at a craft fair or whatever. I mean, I know that that's also like a tough way to actually make a living, but but you want to like believe in the vision where they're just like puttering around making jam and enjoying life. Yes. It's a beautiful mission. I also really need a garden designer, so. Well, we could trade services. Yeah, Trade dream jobs. (laughs) I'll design the garden where you grow the fruit for your jams. Oh, perfect. There you go. I'm on it. I'm I'm loving this future. (laughs) Okay. What are your goals for the podcast, for your writing, and for your advocacy? What is next for you? So I am finishing a book, so it is hard. This is like every writer like hates when people are like, what's your next book going to be about? And I'm like, there are no other books. I'm just trying to finish this one book. All the words go to this book. So I don't know is one answer, but also certainly finishing this book, getting it out into the world. It'll be out next spring 2023 sometime. So that will be the big focus of my work in the next like year and a half because Launching a book and promoting a book is kind of a full-time job for, like, at least three months and often longer. So that is one thing in terms of practical things. In terms of the goals for the podcast, I mean, I just want to keep bringing on, like, more people we need to hear from in this space, more diversity of voices. I think it's really important that my platform be available to folks who need this platform. So that is a big goal. And similarly, I do have a goal for the newsletter of bringing on other writers. I'm not quite ready to launch that because I want to make sure we're in a place where I can pay really well because I have been underpaid as a writer in the past and I know how shitty it is and I will not do it. So that is something we are working towards, being able to do. Yeah, and in terms of advocacy issues... I really want to tackle the issue of kids plus size clothing. That is one that's like sort of burning a hole in my brain right now. Always open to feedback and thoughts from folks who, you know, you all are in this community with us and kind of have a sense of what work we need to be doing. So tell us. I love that. All right. So let's wrap up with Butter for Burnt Toast. Corinne, do you have a recommendation for us this week? I do. Excellent. Okay. So. As true fans may remember, I live in New Mexico. Yes. And it is sadly already getting very hot. Ugh, I'm sorry. Yes. So my butter recommendation this week is for sun protection. Ooh, and I love it. I'm really hoping this the recommendation inspires a lot of people because I really want to feel less weird walking around my neighborhood wearing a solar face shield. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just purchased. And Wait, what is... Th- I don't even know what... Th- I'm Googling it. What is a solar face shield? 
I don't even know if that's really what it's called, but it's basically like sunglass material that covers your whole face. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It looks like, like when people were wearing the shields during COVID. Yes. Yeah. It looks Only like it's, a COVID shield, but it's like sunglass but it's material. it's made of sunglasses. Like tinted. Um, wow. Yes. You are so, committed to your sun, yeah, your sun so protection. I, I just bought that and I do feel self-conscious wearing it around the neighborhood. I've worn it driving. It's great for driving. And then I also got one of those like fold upable bagu hats that I feel like everyone yes. had last summer. Yes. And I got some prescription sunglasses. So wait, so do you need the sunglasses and the face shield? Well, that, so I was like, I've had these just like really ugly over glasses mm-hmm. sunglasses, mm-hmm. and they're like, they're they look terrible, like not even in a cool way. Mm-hmm. They're always like really dirty and they get scratched super easily Mm -hmm. and they're like they feel too expensive for what they are they're like $30 or something Mm -hmm. so I was like well if I get the sun shield I can just wear that over my glasses right I'm seeing that and it covers your whole face your whole face it's only upsides I mean (laughs) seems like a great product (laughs) (laughs) aside from making you look like a space alien (laughs) I'm looking at these pictures. Also, let's deal with the fact that in the first like Google image search, it's like a woman in a bikini top and oh, the face God. shield. And I yeah. feel like these things are at odds with one another. <laughs> like, yeah. if you are so concerned yep. about sun exposure that you're wearing the face shield, why are you not also in a rash guard? But okay. Yep, that's, yep, yep. That's her journey. Okay. So, yeah, my request to listeners is, can we make this cool? Can we embrace the face shield? Are you going to get one, Virginia? Well, I'm wondering about, like, how it would be for gardening because we do. Mm-hmm. So there's periods of this warm weather months where I live where bugs are a big problem. Like, we have, like, yeah. a few weeks of gnats, and then we have a few weeks of mosquitoes. Where th- and I'm like, would it help from, like, bugs flying in my face while I'm gardening if I'm in the face shield? I think of myself as someone who takes sun protection seriously. There is skin cancer in my family. We are a Mm. very white, pasty people. But I have settled, apparently, for decent prescription sunglasses and a strong sunscreen. And you're making me realize I could take that further. All right. I'm here for it. Let me know if you get one. Do I have to buy the $68 face shield from Nordstrom or can I buy the $15 Um. one? (laughs) I will say I bought these sixty-eight dollars from you? Nordstrom, okay. but I don't know. It well, is also very tight on my head, so I would be interested in maybe checking out some other models. Yeah, why are they not? Um, I have a big head. That's good to know. Like, there should be an adjustable band. Um, it's adjustable, but it's just like maybe I just need to break it in. It's it's <laughs> tight. Shoes. You need to yeah, listen. like when I take it off, I have like a little imprint on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> just making just it even adding cooler. to the coolness yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. i mean i have i do own a bug net that i wear during these mm. peaks so like, yes i could see it also being helpful for like holding the bug net because the bug net then like mm. you know a breeze comes and it's like smushed up against your face yeah. in an annoying way this is an amazing recommendation this might be the best recommendation we've ever had <laughs> i'm very excited i i don't have a good one to follow up mine is like <laughs> More predictable. I'm recommending an app for your houseplants called Planta, P-L-A-N-T-A. I have been using it for a few months. I didn't want to recommend it right away in case I didn't like it. But I learned about it when Anne Helen Peterson did her houseplant series, which I also recommend. It's a great read on the history of houseplants. And someone in the comments said they were using this app. 
if you are a person who regularly kills your houseplants or you are a person like me with an excessive number of houseplants <laughs> that are hard to keep track of, it is worth it. Like you have to spend some time up front. You have to take pictures of all your plants and like put them in the app and get them, you know, all organized, which I really loved doing. Like I spent a whole Saturday on that. It was a very satisfying project to catalog my plants. And then it gives you reminders of like when you need to water them. And the other thing that's really helpful is because I don't fertilize in the winter here because most houseplants really kind of want to be dormant when it's cold. But then, like, come spring, you do start fertilizing, and plants are very picky. Like, some plants like a lot of fertilizer, and some plants, like, you really can kill them if you over-fertilize. And so the Planta app is helping me keep track because I was – for last summer, I was like, I'll do it every two weeks for most plants. But then some plants, it's once a month, and I would never remember when I did it. So it gives me little reminders. It does make me feel a little guilty because sometimes it wants me to be doing more – like it thinks I should be misting and I don't really believe in misting houseplants. So sometimes I have to ignore the notifications. So there's that. But yeah, if you're trying to keep houseplants alive, it's a good one. I recommend it. Wow. That sounds great. I mean, also, if you just are like a really big plant nerd, it's it's pretty satisfying. It will also diagnose if you have a problem, a plant that's, you know, sick in some way. It'll help you figure out what's up with it. So, yeah. Well, this was very fun. I enjoyed our little AMA episode. Thanks for being here to help me, Corinne, remind everyone where they can find you and follow your work. Oh, well, mainly you can find me on Instagram at Plus, which is an Instagram I run where people buy and resell plus-size clothes. My personal Instagram is at SelfieFay. She has excellent boundaries. You'll know nothing about her personal life from either of them, other than she has a very cute dog. I don't, I mostly post dog pictures. I don't post a lot. All I there, do hope you'll post the sun shield, though. Is that too much to ask? No, I will post the sun okay. shield. Okay, good. So everyone follow her for that. Stay tuned for my sun protection content. I will be following. <laughs> I will be following it and liking it. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by the wonderful Corinne Fay who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.